let me just publicly say you guys are amazing. And uh, as I was thinking about it this week and just kind of reflecting on um, just everything that's been going on, it's been a whirlwind. We were, we're just kind of reviewing the timeline and it's like, good grief, look at what God is up to. And, and uh, with you, you know, I, I think about you guys and the joy that it is to serve you and to do life and ministry together. It's just uh, a tremendous privilege and uh, one that I don't feel worthy of. So I love you guys, and I'm so grateful for you, and to be able to do this is, is awesome. Obviously, Ron's excited. He was texting me last night at like 10 p.m., and he's like, hey, what, what do you think about this? I was like, yeah, dude, let's do it. Let's get our people up to speed and excited, and so thank you, Ron. Um, do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Numbers, the book of Numbers, and get with me to Numbers chapter 13. Uh, what we're doing right now is we're going through um, a, a series and we're looking at life in the desert wilderness and we're learning lessons from the desert wilderness. And so we've been just kind of tracking together with the people of God as they go through this experience and we are, are drawing some parallels to our current moment that we're, that we're in right now. And we're just trying to learn from them. We, we recognize, and we'll look at this in a little bit, we, we recognize that what they went through was an example for us. And so we want to make sure that we're learning the appropriate lessons. So let me read the text, and we'll pray, and we'll get to work. Numbers 13, starting in verse 1, reads like this. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send out one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites, then in verses 4 to 16, their names are listed there. We'll skip down to 17. It says, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zen as far as Rahab toward Labohamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahaman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had built seven years before Zon in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. 
and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explore devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of a great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've opened your word together, we're praying that you, Lord, by your spirit would speak. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us lessons from the desert wilderness that would have relevance for us today. We thank you, Lord, that you desire to communicate to us, and we welcome that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've got a butterfly up here landing on my Bible and my notes. That's a good sign. Uh, I've preached outdoors before with students uh, doing, uh, sitting by a river and a bird took uh, a dump on my Bible. That was <laughs> the weirdest outdoor experience. So we're off to a better start than that. So we're going to look at lessons from the desert wilderness. There are six different things that I note here, six things that are pretty important for us. The first one is God has a plan. God has a plan. He has a plan for the people, and he's telling them about that, and he's inviting them to experience it, but they don't exactly get on board right away. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. He's telling them that there's this place that they're going to, and he, God, is going to gift it to them. That has been the plan from the beginning. He talked to a guy named Abram. He said, look, you are going to have descendants that are going to be as numerous as the, the stars in the sky. You're going to become a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And a part of that, part of that promise that he was giving to Abram even way back at the beginning was that he was going to occupy a territory. He was going to have a land. His people were going to be given the promised land. Now, the people have been through an awful lot since that initial promise, but God keeps reiterating, I'm going to bring you into this promised land. I'm going to give this land to you. But let's just be real that in that moment with this audience, it probably sounds pretty unlikely. I mean, they have never been in the land before. In fact, the only land that they would be familiar with is a land in Egypt. They didn't own the land. They were they were appointed to it. They were slaves and they were told, here's the place that you can live. This is the area in which you can reside. And so they look forward to a day when they have a land, but all that they know is being homeless, being displaced. And then they march out from Egypt and they're rescued from that situation, but then they live in tents. They live, they set up their tent. And then when God wants to move, they take it down, they bring it to a, a new location. They've They've never really had a physical location that they can say, look, this is where God has planted us. And so when God says, send some people out into that land that I'm going to give to you, they would hear it as, we like that idea, but functionally speaking, we have a hard time believing it's going to come true. That's the reality of how God works. He has a plan, and often we have a hard time embracing that plan. One of the reasons why is because his timeline seldom looks the same as ours. When he says he's going to do something, we would like for it to happen immediately, but that's not always the case. Sometimes it takes hundreds of years. Sometimes his plan comes true, but it's in a future sense of it. I'll give you just one example of how this works for Christians. God, throughout the Bible, has given lots of promises, including this incredible gift of the land. But one of the promises that he gives, and maybe it's the most important one, is the promise of sending a Messiah a savior, a judge, somebody who would take the brokenness of the world and make it right. And the expectation then was he'll show up and everything will immediately get better. But here's the surprise feature of the Messiah. 
he comes in two phases. In the first phase, he came humbly. He came and he offered this invitation, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me and experience salvation. But he didn't come with that judgment quite yet. He delayed that part of his coming and he said, look, I'm coming back. And when I come back, all of that will come true. Well, that's where we're living right now. Jesus has come and he is coming again and we're awaiting that day. And it could happen this week. It could happen this afternoon, but it could also happen hundreds of years from now. And so there's this reality that God has a plan and he knows exactly how he's going to fulfill it. But we often have a hard time getting on board with it because we don't agree with the timeline or we have different expectations for how it would come true. But God is saying, I have a plan. He looks at each of us. He looks at us as a faith community and he says, look, I've got a plan for you. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm up to. I know my good intentions for you. I know how all of the promises will come true in Christ Jesus. I know all of these things for you. Do you believe that? And most of us would say, in theory, yes, we believe that. But functionally speaking, it's hard. It's hard to imagine how God is at work in this moment. It's hard to see how these things are going to come true. And what if they don't come true in my lifetime? Am I okay with that? Can I live by faith in a promise that I don't get to benefit from immediately? Well, God has a plan and he invites this people to explore the fulfillment of that plan. Go to this land, which I am giving to the Israelites. The Lord has a plan for you, for me, and for our community. And so we need to learn from him. We need to learn from the experience of the Israelites that though he kept reiterating this plan, they failed to embrace it. And many of them did not experience the blessings then of, of belief and faith. The Apostle Paul would write like this in 1 Corinthians 10, talking about what they endured, the Israelites. And he says this, these things happened to them as examples. And they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Here's the point. It is very easy to read the Bible and to see what the Israelites did back then and to go, man, that was foolish. I can't believe they did that. I would never do that. I mean, can you imagine living with God and having his presence and seeing his salvation and all these different things and then rejecting him? How silly is that? And we can say, look, we're modern people. We would never do that. But listen to what Paul says. Be careful if you think that you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. See, the Israelites are just us. They're just an older version of us. God has a plan and they fail to embrace that plan because they can't imagine how, how it would come true. So lesson number one is God has a plan. We need to be the kind of people who understand his promises, who familiarize ourselves with the promises that he's given to us, who understand what he's up to, who, who have a nuanced understanding of God's timing, that maybe it doesn't happen immediately, but we're ready and we're going to live by faith regardless. But God has a plan. Secondly, here's another lesson. God wants us to work with the facts. God wants us to explore the reality of life and to get comfortable with things as they are. Look at verses 17 to 20. When Moses sent the group out to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? 
Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there, there trees in the land or not? And do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So we're told over and over again that they are to explore the world as it is. They're supposed to deal with the facts, with the information. God wants them to investigate the land and then to bring back a report of it. We're supposed to be people who have our eyes wide open. Christianity is not just this mystical reality where we say we don't really need to know much of anything. No, we, we, we want to observe the facts. We want to observe the world as it is. In fact, as a young church, uh, you know, a church is both an organism, it's a body, it's a spiritual reality, but it's also, it's also um, an organization. And there are things that, that I have to do as a pastor. I have to, there's, there's good reporting. There's good uh, f- facts that people need to have documented and it needs to be shared with the appropriate individuals. That's all a part of what God is reminding us of, that he cares about the details. God is in the details. He sends them out and he says, take a notepad with you, observe all these different things, bring back an accurate report, take an assessment of the land. So we too need to be people who care about the details, who are paying attention and who are accurately reporting things as they are. Now, as I was working my way through this this week, I was reminded of this cultural moment that we're in. This is a moment of profound misinformation. Um, The church, however, should be a people of the truth. So we need to be a people who are concerned with the details of the world as it is, accurately reporting things as they are. Now, I understand that there are all kinds of complexities to this moment. There's, I was thinking through this and the, 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 the way that I kind of imagine why it is the way that it is, is because of the cultural moment that we're in. We are radically expressive individualists. We're living in a cultural moment where we view the world in a certain way, and there's a tremendous amount of skepticism of authority figures and experts and anything. And so Ash sent me this uh, comic strip a while back, and you know maybe the kids call them memes or whatever, but it was literally illustrated. So it's this dude sitting in front of his computer, and he's t- yelling over his shoulder, Honey, come here. I just found something that proves the experts wrong. And um, that's the MO of the moment that a, a lot of us are so skeptical of information that we don't even believe basic facts. But we need to be a people who are concerned for the truth, that we look at the world as it is, that we observe things as we find them to be, that we learn to accurately report what is happening in this world. So God wants us to work with the facts. One of the reasons why is simply to show our inadequacies. We don't make, facts are our friends, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we don't make decisions simply based off of whether or not it makes sense on paper. Part of why God sent them there was to to show them, you can't do this. You look at this land and you look at the obstacles there and you're going to come to the conclusion, it is impossible for you in your own resources to fulfill this plan. So that leads me to my third observation. God's plan involves obstacles and hardships. He wants them to see what's there and what they find is troubling. Look at verses 27 and 28. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw 
descendants of Anak there, giants. We even saw giants in the land. Now, here's the point that we need to come to grips with. When God says, I have a plan for you, that does not mean it's going to be easy street. In fact, I would say it maybe even the exact opposite. When God has a plan for us, we have to wrap our hearts around the reality that it's likely going to be incredibly hard. It's going to demand from us more than we think we could even do. It's going to require of us to go through these difficulties and hardships and obstacles and suffering and all these different things. That is what God continually says in his word. And if we don't have that category, we become jaded. If we think that following the Lord will simply be easy, we are starting off with the wrong expectations and we will be very, very disappointed. The truth is following God will be challenging. We follow a Lord who is crucified. We should expect that it will be hard for us as well. In fact, when the apostles were traveling around and encouraging the local churches that they helped to plant, they went around encouraging them with these words. This is a very surprising thing. This is a very surprising note of encouragement, but here's what they said, Acts 14, 22. This is their word of encouragement. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You want some good news? You want some encouragement? Here's what it is. It's hard. And in fact, you're going to go through these things even to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is coming. And honestly, if we're in a season of prosperity, I would put it like this. That is abnormal. That's odd. That's weird. But suffering and difficulty and hardships are the norm in the Christian life. So we need to recognize that God's plan will involve an awful lot of that. And that sets us up much better than to have expectations that don't align with reality. And people who don't have that category in their hearts of, I I likely will suffer following the Lord. When it comes, it leads them to become so discouraged and, and even in some awful instances to come to the conclusion that maybe God isn't good. And for me, that's unacceptable. For us as a church family, we have to come to grips with the fact that God's plan will involve difficulty. So we embrace it. Lesson number four, it is easy to be skeptical. It's easy to be skeptical. Look at verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him, with Caleb and Joshua said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. It's easy to become skeptical. It's easy to look at the facts because that's what God tells us to do. Observe this, look at this, document it, write it down, bring back a report, and you go, okay, I'm 10 4, I'm on it, I'm doing that. And you look at it and you go, oh, there's no way. These guys are way stronger than we are. And then you look at it on paper and you go, there's just no way for us to go and do this. And it's easy then to be skeptical. In fact, mathematically speaking, the majority come back with skepticism. Most people observe the challenges and they say, we can't do this. So just get comfortable with that. It's easy to be skeptical. If you find yourself doubting God, you're in the majority. If you find yourself wondering at how this is going to work, You are in the company of the majority of people who go through life. You look at the situation and you go, I just don't understand, God. I don't understand how this could come true. It's easy to become skeptical. Practically speaking, they're looking at 
all of these different obstacles and they're saying there's just no way that the fortified cities, the giants there, the military that they have, there's just no way they are stronger than us. Now, part of what God is doing here is he wants us to agree with that assessment, but then to make another conclusion. Yes, they're stronger than us. Yes, we can't do it on our own. We are happy to report our weaknesses. We're looking at the situation and we're going, yeah, we can't do this on our own. That's why we have God. If God is calling us to it and he's resourcing, it, resourcing us for it, we'll be just fine. But on paper, it often doesn't make sense. Here's the fifth lesson that we learn. Fear and unbelief are transmissible. We're, we're going through a moment where uh, it's a global pandemic and there's a virus and we talk about the transmission of the virus and we do all these different things. But there's another thing that we need to be aware of. Fear and unbelief are also transmissible. They are something that spread quite easily. Look at verses 32 and 33. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We look the same to them. Here's, here's what's going on. Fear and unbelief are being spread through the community. People are hearing this bad report and they're going, you know what? That is a bad idea. I agree with you. Fear and unbelief are, are, are spreading like wildfire here in our story. And the truth is, that's just the way that it works. Fear and unbelief are an easy thing to sell. Bad reports spread quite easily. In fact, if you have a negative thing to say, you, you have a ready-made audience. In fact, there's a lot of reporting right now that, that kind of bugs me because it is so negative. And Christians just eat it up. We're like, okay, tell, tell us how bad it is. And, and then we lean in and we're like, I can't wait to hear this. There's a, there's a reality about fear and unbelief that just spread easily amongst a community. And that's what's going on here with the Israelites. This reality of unbelief is just spreading through them. Now, fear, fear is just, it's an easy thing to sell. I mean, we can take some, some cheap shots at the cultural moment. Obviously, a, a deadly virus is a thing to be feared, but we can use that fear then to create this unhealthy reality in people that they just hole up and they're so fearful of doing anything. And, and obviously, that's an easy thing to spread, and we've seen that happen. There's another fear, though, maybe on another end of a spectrum, which is to say that um, the world right now, as we know it, it is getting worse and worse. And then all of a sudden, people get fearful. If we're not careful here, guys, we're going to lose everything. We're going to be, this is just going to go so sideways, it's ir irretrievable. That's another kind of fear that spreads super easily. And people listen into that and they go, yeah, you're right. You're right. If we don't do something right now, it's all gonna, the wheels are going to fall off. Fear is something that spreads mighty easily. So we need to be careful about our own fears and then about sharing those with other people, about spreading those. Because what happens here is the whole community begins to nod in agreement. Yeah, we should not go in. Yeah, I know God said we should do this, but look, we're in no place to pursue God's will right now. We just got to buckle up and be careful and just sit tight for a moment. And, and they end up not having the joy of experiencing the fulfillment of God's plan. They, they forfeit, in the words of Jonah, Jonah, they forfeit the grace of God that could have been theirs. 
Instead of embracing God's goodness in that moment, they allow fear to overwhelm them and they then sit out of what God is up to in the world, so to speak. Well, finally, here's the last lesson that I think we need to get in front of us. It's this. Faith views things differently. Faith takes into account the audit. It looks at the details. It looks at all the information. It's honest about, yeah, they're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. We can't do it. It looks at all of that, but then it makes a different conclusion. Here's what Caleb says, verse 30. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Now that's audacious. How does Caleb come to the conclusion that's the exact opposite of everyone else? We should go up and take possession of, of the land. We can certainly do it. How did he, why did he come to that conclusion and not the similar conclusion of the majority? Well, he had faith. He had faith in what God was going to do in and through them. Now that faith, one of the things we have to note is that faith has to be persistent. He believed it and he got to see it come true, but not immediately. And in fact, in the face of everyone else continually rejecting God's plan, he had to maintain his faith even when it wasn't moving things forward, so to speak. He had to persist. So while 40 years happened in the desert wilderness, Caleb was there and he was saying, I'm going to get there one day. And maybe other people are not and don't want to, but I'm going to get there. He persists. And then another thing to note is this is not him saying, I've got a magic plan. I've got a strategy. Everyone else is failing to notice that there's a way through this, that we can do this. No, he's not suggesting that he's looking at the information and saying, you know what, guys, I think we can do this because we got it in us. No, he's, he's banking on God. He's trusting in God. So let me just quickly share with you how these obstacles were overcome. And again, they didn't happen immediately, but eventually God brought the people into the land. What happened with those fortified cities. People go in, they look at a town and they go, there was a wall that was impenetrable. There was a wall that our, our military forces, we could never get into that city. There is no way for us to get through there. Well, what did God do? There's a little place called Jericho. It was a big city. It had a huge wall. And God says, here's my plan for Jericho. Why don't you get your marching band out? And why don't you go around the city and march around it, and then, you know, make some noise and, and do some stuff. Okay, God, if that's your plan, and they follow his leadership, and they just keep doing what God instructs them to do, and then they blow their trumpets like they're, like they're winning, and the wall falls down in front of them. So this fortified city that they go, we could never get in there, God says, watch this. You just march around, and then you blow your trumpets, and then go in. And the walls fall down, and they go in, and they overtake the great city of Jericho. Fortify, fortified walls, no problem for God. What about giants? What about the Nephilim? What about these huge individuals who are trained, you know, with all this military prowess? What about those individuals that we think we could never beat one of these guys? And there's a bunch of them. Well, what happened with the giants? Remember the story about David, the shepherd boy? And there's a giant named Goliath and Goliath is taunting the armies of the living God. And David says, look, I'll deal with this guy. Not because I'm so great, but because God is so great. And he goes out there with his little slingshot. And he says, look, you come at me 
with a sword and a javelin and a, and a shield, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. And he flings that rock and it hits Goliath in his head and Goliath falls down and he chops his head off. It's crazy. And I can't believe we tell that story in Sunday school. But he beats the giant and then everyone freaks out. The people of God are like, we, we win. Look at this. God is on our side. Well, the most incredible reality and the biggest obstacles that we face really are sin, death, and the devil. And as we think about how God could ever, you know, bring us through those sorts of realities, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus defeats those things. That we have a hard time imagining how we could ever do away with sin. You can try really, really hard. And most of us that have been Christians for a long time understand how frustrating it is to know your, your, your sin struggle and to want it to change so badly and to pray for it and to not see a whole lot of progress. But when Jesus died on the cross, he conquered sin. He defeated it or death, the great enemy of death. And we look at that and we go, how could we ever overwhelm that? It takes all of us. It, it, every single person we ever meet will die. And the Lord defeated death. And the devil, we've got an enemy who hates our guts and he is working overtime to get us off track and to wreck us and shipwreck our faith. How could we ever defeat the devil? Well, the Lord defeats him. So we trust in the promises of God and we trust specifically in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see him winning for us. We put our faith in him and we experience the blessings of that faith, the salvation that comes by faith. We trust in him and we get to say the promises that God makes. All these things that we can't do in our own strength because God is for us and because God is with us, we can experience the blessing of God. So I'm going to ask that you would stand now and we'll pray. And um, I'll ask the band to come as well. If you need to tuck into some shade, I will totally understand that. But let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you help us. Lord, we are all too often like the scouts that went into the land and we look at the details and we say, this is impossible. There's just no way. Lord, would you inspire our faith today? Help us to believe that you are at work in our lives, that you have a plan. Regardless of the timeline, help us to have the confidence of faith to believe in you. Lord, let us live by faith and let everything that we're doing in this present moment reflect our confidence in what you have done at Calvary. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>